0: You're listening to The Hustle Podcast, stories for startups and innovators. Find out more on www.gohustle.co. Hello and welcome to The Hustle, stories for startups and innovators. And don't forget, you can listen back to this podcast and more on gohustle.co, the home of great business stories. And I'm delighted that a very special guest has joined me on the line here from a great Irish company, Fundrex. Des, you're very welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me on, Keelan. Appreciate
0: it. Uh, First of all, Fundrex, what do you guys do?
1: Okay, so I suppose the 15-second elevator pitch is that we automate data for fund administrators and asset managers. So historically, they would have used the likes of Excel to do all of their reconciliations, and we, we completely automate that.
0: For anybody who isn't in the fund industry, what exactly does that mean?
1: So to break that down a bit further... Um, you'd have the likes of the asset managers who would have all of their cash positions so they obviously trade in stocks and shares and they've got cash movements or money that they're paying in, yeah, receiving in and paying out and they'd also be buying uh, the different securities and what, what Fundrex does is it reconciles their book of records with that of the the likes of the custodians uh, who who would take care of the other side of it. So ultimately, we take what would be a very manual job. And it's just really reconciling data. If people think of their own bank accounts where they were keeping their own records, they would be reconciling ticket and bashing transactions that go across their accounts versus what they see on the bank side. And in a nutshell, that's what we do. Now, the challenge is in the fund industry, there is a very little continuity in terms of the, the data structures. You know, the formats are very different. So you might get files and people listening might be familiar with the likes of Excel and, and CSV files. And that's fine. But there's also other different file structures like XML, Swift, PDF, uh in particularly would be very difficult to deal with because it's hard to extract data from so ultimately we we automate that any file format that we receive we pull the data out of it on both sides of the exchange and we reconcile those transactions
0: so effectively you're you're is it you're effectively matching the data to make sure everything is the same across the board is it
1: that's correct that, that's exactly it, Keelan. so we're making sure sure that there's no differences and if there are differences we allow the user then to categorize those differences and complete their reconciliations. So ultimately, it's, it's, it's a sanity check to make sure that the transactions have occurred as they should.
0: So where does the, the story of Fundrex then then begin? Where did you guys notice that this was an area that needed to be changed, disrupted?
1: Right, so I, I'm in the funds industry since I left college, basically, so in 1998. And I would have spent so much time using Excel spreadsheets to manually reconcile this data, so it might be the data that's coming in from the investment manager versus that on the broker side, and you literally would have two spreadsheets, and you'd be trying to use things like Vlookups, or if you were a little bit more savvy, you might use Visual Basic, people might refer to those as macros, and you'd use macros to try and um, do the work for you, but ultimately there was a lot of manual, manual intervention involved, and So from the very beginning, I started getting involved more on the programming side to try and see, well, can we automate this process? Can we do something to get rid of the, the need for us to be constantly printing out paper, you know, ticking and bashing uh, this information? So an opportunity came up where... Um, there was a bank that was looking for this to be to be automated, and it was just a perfect storm, really. Myself and uh, my co-founder Alamini, along with the third and final co-founder, Padraig Boscano. So Padraig is our CTO. He's our software developer. He got on board, and we built a proof of uh, concept. Now, from the very start, we decided to go cloud only, um, and that was uh, a risky thing. So this was back in 2013 and the reason that was risky was at that point people were slightly averse to using cloud solutions.
0: Hmm. Is that is that yeah. from a from a security point of view especially if you're dealing with funds and money etc.
1: Yeah, so it, it, it's one of those things that cloud at the time was a buzzword that was going around but people were slightly afraid of it because they didn't really understand it. The truth of the matter is cloud solutions have been around for for quite some time certainly predating 2013. But there was definitely a fear about, well, if if I don't hold the data in a, a secure locked room, uh, you know, in, in our premises, let's say it's in a bank, then, you know, I'm worried, you know, where could that data go? But the fact of the matter is we would use the likes of Amazon Web Services and Amazon Web Services level of security would be far superior than, you know, than what we would have seen in, in places that we'd worked ourselves. So, The other thing about Amazon Web Services is that they basically give you as much power or as little power as you need to get the work done. So if you took the case of the likes of Mark Zuckerberg, when he started out with Facebook in 2005, he was famously saying that um, he was spending all his money on server farms, and that's just these big, large machines uh, that basically can hold all the data. But if you use the likes of, and I'm just naming Amazon Web Services, but you've got plenty of others like Microsoft Azure, all these guys, big players in the game, and they charge very little money relative to the job that they're doing for you, which is great because the web services takes care of your security, it takes care of your encryption, it takes care of your hosting, and it does it for a very reasonable price.
0: Interesting. Um, And how did you convince people that... First of all, to go with you, but also to go with a startup as well because now you're're a, you're, a, you're a double threat
1: yeah so that's that's a very good question and and so if we take it in two pieces on the using a cloud solution, fortunately, what started to happen, particularly in the states, they were early adopter adopters of cloud solutions, and a number of our clients are american um American-founded companies. So we had a couple of those that came on board at the start. And it's kind of, I suppose, nobody wants to be the first to jump. But once you kind of get it, and and the first ones that we convinced had had a small experience and a positive one with a startup company like Fundrex, uh, but also using a cloud solution. So that really helps. So somebody else had actually de-risked for us. Now, the other thing that we do is we do a proof of concept where we'll build a small version of what, the company needs, put, put it in the cloud, and then what we will do is we will get them to build their own internal use uh, test case and say, yep, yeah, this works, and we're happy with this. Uh, once they're happy with it, then we uh, push it into a live environment, and it's only when it goes into the live environment in production that they actually pay for it, because the interesting thing, and I've learned it over time, is when we try to sell into any company, there's two stages, to, or two people that you're selling to. You're selling to the internal sponsor. That's the person that's taking a chance on bringing you in, and you're also then selling. That person's also selling internally to their boss and their board of directors, saying, "Okay, um, I have this idea. There's this company that could automate this for us." So ultimately, we know we're selling to two. So to further de-risk that, we allow uh, monthly, rolling, cancel anytime contracts, which is which is very new to the industry. As far as I'm aware, nobody else was doing that.
0: Mm. What about the, the, I suppose, the industry as a whole, because I was uh, in attendance at your uh, fantastic conference that you had going on the other week at Minivate. And what struck me was that the industry as a whole is not a big fan of change. It doesn't like dramatic change, even if that change uh, dramatically decreases the amount of paperwork or whatever. It's just hard to get in there. How did you kind of, I suppose, how did you do it?
1: yeah so i mean and it's still very resistant to change and the the thing about it is everybody likes to talk about being innovators and every large company that you hear will say well we we've created internal incubators you know uh, innovation hubs and all those kind of good things a lot of it is talk unfortunately so there are a couple of players out there that are actively trying to do this they're actually they're actually putting money into it. And that's really uh, the proof the pudding is in the eating. So people can talk about, yeah, we, we, we want to change. There's a number in the fund administrators, administration space that are actually putting money behind it and are actually engaging with either fintech or their own internal development team to actually create new automated ways of, of doing things. So one word that you'd hear a lot is RPA, that's robotic process Automation—it's uh, a fancy word for uh, the likes of macros, which I mentioned that I would have used in the past. But there are, there are, there is a movement towards um, greater automation. And the one thing I would say to people is, that they continuously talk about the, the likes of blockchain, and blockchain is, a, you know, a quantum leap that's taken a massive, massive jump. Where I would be encouraging companies and, and blockchain in some shape, make or form will come in, but a little bit further down the line. But there are plenty of other ways that people can automate uh, without feeling God I have to go for a you know, a big bang approach, which would be like a blockchain approach. Um, so how we convince people, as I mentioned, is small proof of concept, small ver- start very small, allows them to build a test case. And prove it that way so that they can sell it internally. And that's what we would have done.
0: And as part of that as well, it also gets them comfortable as well. So they kind of learn at their own kind of pace and they go, yeah, actually, yeah, this actually works and, and so on and so forth. Instead of walking through the door and go, kaboom, here, everything's changed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the biggest problems that we would see in the, the fund space, and, and particularly the larger the company is, the longer the procurement cycle is. So the problem we would see with procurement in the fund space, it could be anything from two months to two years. And that's a very difficult thing to deal with if you're a small uh, startup company. So the only way to kind of get past that, well, one of the ways is to is to try and de-risk it for the company, whether it's through you know, offering a um you know, a test period, uh, a small proof of concept, whatever way you can to kind of get yourself in the door and satisfy the powers that be, that there is very little risk with doing this. And, uh, and ultimately it's going to work, work out the best for them. But again, we need to have to prove that it works first before anyone will cut you a check. And I think that's that's important.
0: Yeah. And, and those kind of tender processes, I know you've gone through them, them uh, as well. They can be quite frustrating. Uh, for a startup, when you, go for perhaps a a tender or or something like that with a big company and you don't get it how do you react to that and how do you kind of just move past that
1: yeah so the whole rfp process for anyone not familiar it's just a request for uh, a proposal it's basically where somebody has a piece of work that they want done and they send that out to the market and they ask the market um, you know to come back with responses with prices or maybe to actually do a proof of concept um, I've seen quite a few fishing exercises and what a fishing exercise is basically where they create the RFP, but they're actually only really trying to figure out, well, how would this be done properly? And then ultimately they, their intention is going to build it internally. Now that does happen and we have seen that happen. Uh, we've done quite a few RFPs where we didn't get the deal. Uh, one of the main reasons was our size. So for anyone listening, if you uh, have a FinTech company, um, or reg tech, you know, a lot of buzzwords there, but and you've been asked to RFP, you just need to be very careful and upfront. And I would even just ask the person who's initiating the RFP, um, are they okay with the size of your company? Are they okay with the balance sheet of your company? And one of the biggest pieces of advice I would give to any uh, new company to market is get those difficult questions out of the way at the start. Don't hide away from them. So don't hide away from the fact that you might have a cloud-only solution. If you have a cloud-only solution, tell them. If you have limited resources, tell them. If you have a very small balance sheet, tell them. And if your track record is small, tell them. So get all of those things out of the way. And it might sound counterintuitive when you're trying to sign a deal uh, and get you know get a bit of a track record going. But unfortunately, those questions, it, through the RFP procurement process, they're going to come up anyway.
0: You yourselves, your your I suppose your timeline, your... Just growing, you're getting out there, you're developing your name for yourselves. How do you then, I suppose, kick on and make sure that that growth is uh, consistent as well?
1: Yeah, so we would have our own milestones. And just in terms of the structure that we have currently in place for the company, uh, we're very fortunate. We've got a very strong development team. They're based in Waterford Institute of Technology, then Arc Labs on the southeast of Ireland. So we have our own dedicated development team there. We don't use any third-party uh, software uh, with, with the exception of one piece, and uh, little application called Intercom, which is very, very good for communicating directly with your clients. And then our operations people, we're all based uh, on Westmoreland Street in Dublin. So we're right in the center of the city. Um, so in terms of growth targets, what you try and do, well, we would do a lot of upselling as well. So you might reconcile data in one department of an organization, and then when you do a good job there, word inevitably spreads, and um, you know they they talk to other colleagues who would do slightly different reconciliations, but one that, ones that that we can handle all the same. Now the other thing that I would say is the funds industry itself, by its very nature, is very it's it's an international. Uh, things. So we would have some clients that have, will have offices in five continents, for example. So like Luxembourg at the moment, uh, it would be a hotspot for us. So we would have clients signed there. We have the same then, the same organizations will have offices in the likes of Singapore, New York, uh, in Canada, and then obviously London and Dublin. So Really, it's just a question, I think, of doing a really good job for your initial clients and the rest of the kind of, to a certain extent, takes care of itself. Now, you, you're always trying to sell, but ultimately, I'm a firm believer that get it right with your initial clients and then word them out itself uh, should be enough to, to kick you on and that's what's what happened for us.
0: Why hire the, or why have the, the in-house team? Because perhaps the temptation nowadays as well is to go and outsource it to... China or India or Eastern Europe or something yeah. like that. So, so why, why have it in-house?
1: Yeah, so there are certain restrictions that have actually, well, there's two reasons, but I'll give you the first reason. Uh, reason. The central bank recently issued a, a dear CEO letter where they basically said that they weren't happy with the level of outsourcing that was going on. Now, the reason for that is a lot of fund administrators, they're, they're third party, so they're already the outsourcer's to the asset manager if you like. So they're they're, they're the ones that the work has been outsourced to. If they in turn are then outsourcing that work that they've been given to do to another uh, lower cost jurisdiction, then you're watering down the the quality of the work that's being done. And also the central bank obviously wants to make sure that the work ultimately is being done, signed off to a certain extent uh, in Ireland, because that's the jurisdiction where the the administrator is. So, uh, so, yeah, so I would definitely say that the central bank has had a few things to say about that. Yeah, that would probably be the main reason.
0: So what's next then for, for you guys? You're you're there, you're growing, you've got your team there. How do we look at you guys over the next 18 months?
1: Yeah, so one of the things, so where we're currently at is we have it automated as far as we can possibly automate it to the level where if you've got a difference on one side uh, versus the other That's what the user is left with. And then they as a human decide what to do with that. We call them breaks. So let's say you have an activity, a transaction on one side and it's not on the other. Then a human comes in and says, I know what that is. Uh, it, It hasn't settled on this side or it's not in the book of records on that side, whatever it might be. And then they book it and they close the record. That's great. What we are currently doing is we're working on the area of machine learning. Now, machine learning is another buzzword uh, out there and what people sometimes are using this fuzzy logic, just nested if statements and things like that. What we want to do is we want to take three years' worth of historical reconciliations, feed that information to the Fondex machine and for the machine itself to determine what to do with the brick. So that is the next phase, and that is what we're working on for the next, I would say, uh, four to six months and after that is done, we should have a straight through end to end reconciliation where there's no humans touching anything. So that's the ultimate goal. Whether we achieve it or not, only time will tell that. But that's what our aim is. Fantastic.
0: Very interesting stuff. Uh, you will. You will do it. Des. There's no maybe. You will do it. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, we're we're pretty confident we will do it. But we'll, as I say, the main thing at FunRex is we like to prove our worth rather than just talk about it. You know, talk is cheap. So as soon as we've got that done, we'll be issuing a white paper showing the results of it and then people can then see for themselves.
0: Absolutely fantastic. If people do actually want to see for themselves what you guys do, have a look, maybe use the system or contact you guys, how do they do that?
1: Yeah, so they can get me. So dev at fundrex.com. Uh, They can go online, fundrex.com. There's multiple channels. You'll get us on LinkedIn, uh, on Twitter, all the usual social media sites. But give us a shout and we'll be happy to have a a conversation about whatever it is that you need.
0: Absolutely fantastic. Des Donahue from Fundrex uh, here in Ireland. Thank you very much for joining us and the best of luck to you and the Fundrex team over the next 18 months.
1: Cheers. Thanks very much, Keelan. Thanks.
0: You're listening to The Hustle Podcast, stories for startups and innovators. Find out more on www.gohustle.co.